It is good to be with you guys today. As you make your way back to your seats. I, um, I didn't get to be here last weekend. I, I, I got to go speak uh, at a fall retreat for, for a student ministry down in Springfield. I thank you guys for, for uh, giving me the weekend to go do that. It was such a blessing to get to go serve this church and be out in the middle of nowhere and, and just being, I mean, gosh, the best November weekend you could possibly ask for to be out in the middle of the woods. But I missed you guys. I'm glad to be back. I, man, Jesse did an amazing job covering the text. It was so, such a, such a just fruitful, good time in Colossians, and I'm stoked to continue it. So let's jump straight to it, if you don't mind. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 today. If you guys want to go ahead and turn there, if you don't have a Bible today, we have house Bibles at the end of each row. We'd love for you to snag one of those. If you don't have access to a Bible, please, please, please take one of those or, or talk to me, talk to one of our pastors. We will make sure you have a Bible. We really, really believe in the power of access to God's Word. Um, so we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 today, and I really am just like, I'm stoked. I want to get straight to this. So let me, uh, let me pray for us. Uh, and then let's, let's read through this. Jesus, we need you this morning. Jesus, as we, as we take a few minutes to be in your word, to, to um, read this letter that was written years ago by brothers and sisters in, in faith for, for a specific context, a specific church like ours, but also very different than ours. Lord, we pray that this wouldn't just be this old historical text that we're reading, but we pray that, that you would speak through your revelation. That as the word says, it would, be, it would be living and active, that you would cut us to the quick, that you would divide bone and sinew, that you would convict us of our areas of sinfulness and slothfulness. Lord, give us eyes to see our blind spots to your kingdom, Lord. Give us humility to actually believe what we say about Scripture, that when the Scripture teaches things, that it means them. Lord, allow us to be humble enough to be formed by your word, to be open enough to receive your truth. Holy Spirit, be our interpreter, our teacher today. Speak through your text uh, and just be glorified in our time today. We love you, Jesus. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, we are in Colossians 1, starting in verse 24. Uh, remember, we are jumping into an existing thought here. This is um, all part of this kind of extended introduction Paul is doing to this letter. So um, I'm going I'm to start us in verse 24, um, but we're, we're jumping into a thought that already exists here. So it says this, uh, in the, starting in the 24th verse of the first chapter of the letter to the Colossians, we read this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Whoop. For in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God more fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, 
the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And this is the word of the Lord. So, there's, there's a lot here. What I'd like to do is I'm going to walk back through this text kind of piece by piece. There's one textual element, a couple cultural elements I want to point out to us, but I really think the teaching of this text will, for the most part, just kind of shine through some of that stuff and speak for itself. And I think once we kind of get on the same page about what's being said here, it's going to remind us of some teaching from James' letter, and we'll end our time with Jesus' teaching in Matthew 13. Sound good? Awesome. So, let's remember to put this back in its context, right? We're in a letter that Paul wrote to a church, a church he hasn't visited that he didn't start. It's a church he's heard about through one of its pastors, this guy named Epaphras. So Paul is writing this letter to a church from prison, by the way. This is one of his prison epistles, um, writing to a church that he doesn't know. He only knows them through reputation, through this minister, Epaphras, but there is concern that this church has fallen into heresy. It has gone away from the orthodox teaching of the gospel, and so Epaphras, as as a responsible pastor to protect his flock, sees himself losing this battle internally to the truth and sacredness of the gospel within his church, and so he pulls out the big guns. He leaves, he travels, he finds Paul, he says, please, speak to my church on behalf of the gospel. Like, they're not listening to me, but they're swaying away from the truth. So Paul writes this letter to a church that he doesn't know in the hopes of drawing them, persuading them back to the truth of the gospel. Now, We've talked about how that plays into this extended introduction he's doing. Paul, in his opening of this letter, he's doing a lot of groundwork of trying to establish some relational and authority connections between him and this church. They don't know him, and so he goes out of his way to kind of build up this theology of the universal church. There's one gospel going out, and God is seeking and saving the lost throughout the entire world with this one gospel message. I, Paul, am a part of it. You, Colossae, is a part of it. Epaphras is a part of it. It's, it's one thing that's happening, right? So he kind of lays some of that groundwork, and then he, he goes out of his way to make connections between himself and this church. He says, I recognize you guys. You are a church. I see the fruit of the Spirit in you. I see the, the same things that the gospel is doing in all the world. I see him doing them in you because it's not about us. It's about the work that God has done. And he talks about how this universal church is able to move forward because God himself did the work of qualifying and giving people entrance into the kingdom, right? It is God who qualified you and made you a part of his church. And then he says he's able to do that because of who he is. And he gets into this Christology, right? Where he picks apart the grandness of Jesus, right? 
And he connects Jesus, the Messiah, to the idea of creator and sustainer of the universe, that he's the creator. He, he, he made it in him, through him, for him. He holds it together and sustains it. He's the head and authority of the whole church, that whole work he talked about. And he's the, the one who made and qualified and, and works out salvation, right? So he makes this massive claim about Jesus. He kind of brings the whole thing back to this founding text, that kind of 15 through 20 in chapter 1, really becomes like the bedrock of the message of this whole book, where Paul makes this insanely huge claim about Jesus, where he essentially says, Jesus Christ is the lynch point of all of reality, right? Not just your experience of spirituality right now, but everything in the physical universe, everything in the spiritual universe, everything, all of reality sits underneath the authority and control and power of Christ. That is a massive claim, right? But Paul says that this massive claim is the starting point of the gospel. We have to come back to this. We have to come back to this. It all comes back to Jesus. And, by the way, as he goes on and he starts talking about how our inclusion in this kingdom fundamentally changes our identity, right? This is what Jesse jumped into last week, this idea that because of Christ's authority and because of the work he chose to do with his life, his sacrifice, his resurrection, his ascension, we have become fundamentally different. Our identity has changed as people who are included in the kingdom. Essentially, what he gets back to is this idea that Jesus changes everything. That the reality, the truth of who Jesus is, this changes everything about our experience of life and reality. Again, you'd be hard-pressed to find a claim that big, right? Paul's essentially saying here, listen, listen, I cannot oversell this to you. I cannot overstate this to you. This is the biggest and most fundamental truth of existing. Jesus is in and over everything. Everything. And that truth changes everything. All of reality moves and breathes and functions in relationship to Jesus Christ a dude who actually walked around, who was a rabbi in another country on the other side of the planet thousands of years ago. We talked, right, about how that's, that's the foolishness of the gospel, is that the claim it makes is so insanely large that apart from the Holy Spirit intervening and doing the work we talked about of how he qualifies you, that you just can't understand it. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. And that's the thing, by the way. I want to come back to this. I want to come back to this a lot while we're in Colossians because this really goes back to the root of what this church was struggling with. Beloved, I think this is the temptation of the American church today is when we actually think about the grandness of the Bible's claims about Jesus, if we're honest, we can understand the foolishness of it. And that's a little embarrassing. 
When we hear about the problems and issues society and friends and family are working through, and we come back to the fact that like, well, really it all comes back to this, this dude who lived in Israel 2,000 years ago, they're like, really it does? Because that seems dumb. <laughs> and I think this temptation to shrink back from a biblical Christology is one of the greatest temptations that faces the modern church. Because we're insanely educated and we're surrounded by an educated, secularized, pluralistic culture that teaches us about how grand and huge the universe is and how small and insignificant we are. And the claim of Christianity is so huge and so grand, it comes across as foolishly arrogant. But beloved, if we can learn anything from this letter, it's this. You can't shy away from a biblical Christology. It is the bedrock upon which we fall. Jesus changes everything. Everything. He is the linchpin of human existence. Paul's not even to the meat of the letter yet. I love that. He's not even like to the heresy yet. He's not even like addressing the specific issues, but he's already struck at the heart of the Colossian problem. See, the heresy this church was struggling with was some form of syncretism, right? They're adding other practices, rituals, beliefs, ceremonies to their faith. They're saying, wow, yeah, Jesus is awesome. The experience of the Holy Spirit is cool. We love this whole thing, but like, let's add some stuff to this so that we can gain some deeper levels of experience, some deeper levels of wisdom, some deeper levels of knowledge, and kind of make this thing more meaty and more complete. Paul is cutting at the heart of that from second one of this letter saying, there is nothing to add to Jesus. You don't get bigger than that. You don't get bigger than everything was made in him, through him, for him. That is the largest claim that can be made. There's nothing to add. Essentially, he starts off by, by really pushing us back to the sufficiency of Jesus. Jesus plus nothing is everything. Done. Right? That's really where we're starting here, right? And I love about this text today is that here Paul turns a corner from these massive theological statements and he starts to, to bring his person into it. See, in the previous text, kind of so far, Paul hasn't made a big deal out of himself. In some of Paul's letters, he starts by really digging into his apostolic authority, his ministry, his story, and he's going to get into some of that, but he doesn't weigh as heavily on that in Colossians, precisely because they have no clue who he is, right? His, his story, his authority, his position, his calling doesn't mean as much to the Colossian church as it might to the Ephesian church or to the churches around Galatia, because they haven't met him, right? But here he turns a corner, and I love that he turns the corner here. Paul, after having established this mammoth biblical Christology, now he brings his own story into it. And I think there's a really good reason for that. As Paul kind of digs in the text here, he starts to show basically how this truth of Jesus, this idea that Jesus changes everything, he's using some of his own testimony as evidence for that. He's saying, look, Jesus changes everything. If you don't believe it, look at my life. I, I mean, I, I get beat up for this thing. 
I'm, 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 not like, I'm not just giving you guys talk. I'm not just some random guy writing you a letter telling you what you should believe. Like, like I've got skin in the game in the most literal sense of that. Like, like I suffer for this gospel. And then he b- digs in here to uh, kind of this opening, this opening part here. I have to stop here. Verses 24 and 25. I don't know if you're like me, but this, this phrase he uses, like maybe if you are a little more theologically minded or a little bit more of a church brat, like this phrase kind of like laser burned into my mind and I, couldn't, I can't really wrap my head around this text until I resolve this issue, right? Where he sits here and he goes, well, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's suffering on your behalf. And you're sitting there going, wait a minute. Wait just a second. I thought you just told us about Jesus's sufficiency, right? Didn't you just go into the grandness of Christ and the complete and total like ridiculousness of adding anything to Christ? So you're filling in what's lacking? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Let me, I want to explain this and I'm not going to park here very long because to be totally honest, it's kind of boring, but I want to explain this to you guys. But before I get into the weeds of it, just hear this. On a cursory reading, it can really easily sound like, in this text, that Paul is saying that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is not fully sufficient, and that what is insufficient must be filled in, right? He's not saying that. It's easy to read it that way. He's not saying that. Hear that. If you hear nothing else of the piece I'm about to explain, that's not what Paul's saying. (laughs) It would invalidate the entire letter up to this point, if that was what Paul was saying. It would be nonsensical, right? So here's what's going on here. So you have to remember, one of the theological kind of um, nuances or specific kind of aspects of the early church was that it was very apocalyptic. The early church thought stuff was going down super quick. It's part of the reason why they didn't write stuff down for a while, because they're like, there's no point. If we write it down, I mean, he's coming back like next week. I'm not going to sit down and write an essay. And so they waited a while. It wasn't until the eyewitnesses and the apostles started to die off that they were like, you know, he might take longer than we thought. You know, now that we're saying it, he never really said when he was coming back. We just kind of assumed. And all of a sudden they started scrambling and they wrote everything down. It's why like all the writing happened in like this short period of time around the end of the first century or that, yeah, around, around that time because there was this moment as people started dying off where they were like, oh, we should actually preserve this. Like, we kind of just thought he would be back by now, but we should, we should, we should preserve this. So the, the early church operated from this mindset that the end was coming very, very, very fast. If you had sat down with the church at Colossae and said, hey, do you know 2,000 years from now, churches are going to be sitting around, like, worshiping Christ and picking apart, like, the letter you received from Paul? They'd be like, why? They'll be in heaven. Like, they, they wouldn't, that wouldn't click for the early church, right? And so connected to that, keep, keep that in mind, right? So that's the one piece. The, the, the pretty, pretty universal operating theology of the early church was that Christ's return was very, very eminent. So, so that piece is there. The other piece to this is there was this larger, uh, more kind of worked out, thought out Jewish theology of the Messiah that existed in the early church because they had spent a lot of time as Jews, meditating, thinking, studying about what the Messiah will be like. And as Jesus embodied these prophecies of the suffering servant, this theology of suffering connected to the Messiah really kind of came to life and flourished 
in the early church. And so there was this existing idea that part of the ministry of the Messiah, part of the salvific ministry, was to experience suffering for the sake of the lost. It was really kind of locked into this idea. So when Jesus says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's suffering on your behalf, here's what you need to hear about that. What he's saying is not that Christ's suffering on the cross is insufficient for your redemption. What he is saying is that Jesus is not currently physically present with you. And so as the church present on earth now, we experience the suffering messianic ministry where we experience pain and loss and suffering for the benefit of the lost as we await Christ's return. He's essentially pointing out the theology of suffering that the early church understood really well. By saying lacking, he's talking about physical presence. Christ is not physically hanging out in Colossae. What's up, guys? No, he's ascended onto heaven and we're awaiting his return. And so Paul says, I gladly take on that ministry of suffering on behalf of the lost. Gladly. And this is the piece of what goes into this part of the text. You see, Paul, he brings out this really cool language, right? He talks about the mystery of the gospel hidden for ages. He's doing this brilliant thing here. Essentially, and, and, and again, like this is just another one of those kind of cultural pieces we can miss, right? So remember, the church is struggling with syncretism. They're struggling with adding outside ideas to the gospel, right? Distorting the gospel with non-Christian doctrine, non-Christian beliefs. There was a really common religious philosophical worldview in the Roman world in, in the first, second, third centuries uh, that, that it took on a ton of forms, but the basic version of it was this idea that seeking out secret hidden knowledge is an ultimate inherent spiritual good. Learning mysteries, gaining access into new spiritual and wisdom-based ministries, that is inherently good and, a, and, and just universally good goal to achieve, right? And so undoubtedly, some of that is playing into the Colossian temptation to syncretize the gospel with other teachings. We don't know to what extent, but it was so, it was so just rampant in that world and that culture that it's undoubted. But rather than picking out specific, minute philosophies, because there were literally hundreds and hundreds of them throughout the Roman world, rather than picking one out specifically, Paul does this brilliant thing where he uses the Old Testament language of mystery and wisdom to call out the foolishness of this pagan mystery religion. So he locks into this language that was common in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, that, that wisdom is a mysterious thing that God gives to those. He locks into that existing motif in the scripture to draw the Colossians back, not to, not to call out the specific heresy they're dealing with, but to make it look foolish next to the sufficiency of Christ and his revelation. I mean, it's brilliant, right? Like, it's just brilliant. And he, he essentially goes this, listen, you're looking for a mystery? Let me tell you the mystery. There's only one mystery, and that's this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's been made known. 
all the stuff. Any philosopher comes to you and is like, I have secret knowledge. Come, join my weird club. Pay the century fee. I'll let you know what's going on. That's foolishness. There's only one mystery that matters. The God who made everything, who created and sustains all reality in him, through him, for him, that God chooses to dwell in you in your salvation. You live in the hope of glory because of the dwelling spirit within you. That's a mystery. And when you put it like that, you're like, well, dang. (laughs) Well, dang. Yeah. So Paul brings it back and says, listen, you're looking for a mystery? Let me show you the mystery. Christ cares about you. The holy, perfect creator, sustainer God loves you, even you, even us, Red Tree. He chose to die on our behalf. He chose to qualify us. He chose to suffer on our behalf. Think about the insanity of that. How much would you be willing to suffer for the benefit of an amoeba? Think of the insanity of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. But he does. He's in you. The hope of glory. He made peace by his blood on the cross, and he's in you. The hope of glory. Christ bought eternity on the cross. Come on. So Paul says, this truth is so buck wild I will do anything for this. I will do anything to get this out there. I will toil with his energy. He's in me. But I will do whatever the heck it takes. I will suffer anything and everything gladly that as many people as is physically, humanly possible can be presented to Christ, perfect and blameless. Do you see that? He says everyone three times. This is a verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone, presenting everyone. He says this truth is so huge, it's so grand, I will do anything for this. You think the gospel is foolishness? You think this claim that this rabbi is the linchpin of reality is foolishness? You think I'm just blowing hot air at you? You think this is just talk? Look at my life. I will do anything for this message. That's what Paul tells us. I mean, come on. So, that's basically what it's at. Like, that's That's the text. Paul says he kind of brings together these ideas he's been talking about in the first chapter. He's kind of bringing this introduction together where he said, look, you don't know me, but I heard stuff about you. I know we're in the same thing together. I know we're, we're all believers. We're all, we've experienced this gospel. Man, the gospel's amazing, isn't it? Isn't it amazing how grand and huge and perfect God is and how insane it is that he loves us? How, how crazy is it that God has done this for us, even us? Man, that's insane. I don't know about you guys, but I will do anything for that message. I will do anything for it because I want everyone to know. I want the whole world to experience what I've experienced, to find the freedom that I've found, to find the life that I've found. I live with Christ in me. I have hope of glory. Me, sinful, terrible, awful me. I have hope of glory because Christ is in me. How amazing is that? 
So anyway, I heard you guys were dealing with uh, some heresy stuff. Right? Like, that's how he opens this letter. It's amazing. So what do we do with that? <laughs> what is that? What does that mean for us? It means this. Jesus changes everything. If he is who he says he is, it changes everything. Beloved, can I just be real for a second? You're like, you've not been being real this whole sermon? (laughs) Every single one of us, if we're church brats, if if you've been plugged into Red Tree for a while, right? If I was like, hey, the Bible, that's God's word, right? That's his revelation, right? That's God making himself known. That's true. That's real truth. We'd all be like, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's God's word. Let me tell you something. This is one of those texts that takes that doctrine and really puts it to the test in your life. Do you believe God's word is true? Do you believe God's word is the actual revelation of the God of the universe? The unknowable, invisible God making himself known to us? Do you believe that's actually true? That there's actually, there's words in here that are actually life? That should actually change the way you live? That's not a rhetorical question. (laughs) Do we believe that? Because if we do, Paul says there are implications to that belief. If we actually believe that, if we actually take Jesus at his word, we actually believe he is who he says he is, that how the apostles described his ministry and his kingdom actually reflects reality. Beloved, I have news for you. That means something for you. It means something for me. It reminds me of the words of James. Probably the most famous passage in James in the first chapter. He's writing to the, 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 the Jewish church has been dispersed from Jerusalem because of persecution. The first time the Christian church is really being beaten up for their faith. And he says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And hear this. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature. James says, hey, this suffering you're experiencing, physical beatings, murder, martyrdom, loss of property, broken relationship, broken families, because that's what the Jerusalem church was experiencing. Count that joy. Count that a privilege. Because you know that that suffering, that produces perseverance. And then he says, don't weasel out of it. Let it stew. Sit in it. Let perseverance finish its work. Come on. How many of us, right? The first inkling of pain and discomfort, we're like, whoo! God, you got my attention. What do you want me to do? Let's get out of this right now. And James would say, how about you stew in that for a little minute? How about you let that hurt? How about you let that just be painful? Because there's something in that pain for you. 
There's something in that suffering for you. Guys, I don't know about you. That's a foreign language to me. That's a foreign language. I am not quick to see God in my pain and my suffering. I'm not. I say that confessionally to you guys. I'm not. I don't know about you. I'm not a fan of discomfort and pain. In fact, I'd rather avoid those things. In fact, I would rather expend a massive amount of mental, emotional energy plus finances to avoid those things at any and all costs. Come look at my utility bill. Right? I'm not a big fan of discomfort. And I avoid it and I fight it. And when God gets my attention, I go, cool, let's learn this lesson as quickly as possible, God. Because I want to get back to comfort. And God says, oh, Sam, okay. How about you let perseverance have its full effect? How about you stew in it? If that's hard for you to hear, I would invite you to come back to Colossians. Because Jesus changes everything, including your relationship to suffering and pain. Look at Paul. Look at what the gospel did to that man's life. You're talking about a dude who was a rock star in his culture. He shot to prominence and fame and authority at an early age. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was on the Sanhedrin. He was the rock star of his day, a young and rising theologian and teacher who had nothing but potential and comfort and fame in front of him. And he met Jesus in a very real and unavoidable way. When Jesus shows up and knocks you off your donkey and leaves you blind, you don't have much choice but to experience the gospel and to interact with the truth of Christ. See, Jesus converted Paul with suffering because Paul was living a life of leisure and comfort. And he had to be shocked to the truth of the gospel. And guys, we sit here and we go, man, Paul, the apostle Paul, this giant of the faith, this theologian, he, he got the honor of writing like half the New Testament. Man, like look, what he gave up was nothing. Look how, look how much of a spiritual giant he was. Yeah, he did get the privilege of penning a big chunk of the Bible. That's amazing. We all know who he is. Uh, look what he paid for that privilege. His life was miserable. And you need to hear that. Paul himself said, my life's miserable. This is awful. I hate getting beat up. I get beat up all the time. I get whipped and stoned and beaten and thrown out of ships and left out in the wilderness. I almost died so many stinking times. And then he goes, listen, if there's not heaven, if it's only for this life, if my faith is just a cool philosophy to give me inner peace, then I have ruined my life. I had so much going for me. When I said yes to Christ, I said yes to suffering and loss. You guys know Paul was stoned to death for preaching the gospel and then Christ resurrected him and he went back in the city and kept preaching? We don't talk about that story often. But in Paul's first missionary journey, he walks into a city, he preaches, they get upset, they drag him outside the city and stone him to death. 
His converts come out and sit or circle around him and pray over him. And he wakes back up, sits up, goes back in the city and starts preaching again. That's the price that dude paid to get to pen half the New Testament. Come on. That's the kind of suffering he talks about when he says, I toil with all the energy he gives me so that everyone can hear this message. That's what he's talking about. So, what do we do with that? What does that mean for Red Tree? What does that mean for Pastor Sam? What does that mean for you guys? Turn with me to Matthew 13. I'm going to read you one of my favorite texts. This is Jesus' parables. He's telling all these stories that can have spiritual implications. I'm going to read these two really well-known parables. They're like a sentence each. This is Matthew 13, starting in verse 44. Read this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who is in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and he bought it. We don't have time to do it. I could do a whole other sermon series on this. We don't have time for that. I want you to hear this, though. When you engage Jesus' parables, a good rule of thumb is to ask two questions. Read the parable twice. Read it from the first time asking yourself, what would this parable be about if Jesus was the main character? And then read it again and go, what would this parable be about if the church was the main character? That's not always true, but it's a good, it's a good rule of thumb when you engage Jesus' parables. So think about this for a moment. The God of the universe, in, through, for, creator, sustainer, authority, reigning on high. He's wandering along. He finds a treasure. He says, this is worth it. He goes and he sells all that he has so he can have the treasure. He liquidates all his available resources that he might have the treasure. I like the second parable even better. The creator, sustainer, authority, in, through, for, is out hunting for a treasure. He knows what he's looking for and he wants it. And when he finds it, he says, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. And he goes and he liquidates all his resources to have it. He doesn't care the price. That's the treasure. That's intense. And yet that's how the gospel is presented to us. The God of the universe, for whatever reason, sees his image stamped in us and says, that is a treasure. I will pay for that. I will have that. Nothing will stop me from having that. I will pay whatever price is necessary to have that. And Jesus goes and he suffers and dies on the cross and perfection is killed and he who knew no sin became sin and yet the scripture says for the joy set before him he endured the cross. Because Jesus saw you and me and he saw a treasure. I'm telling you guys, I don't see it. But he does. He does. And he paid the price to have it. So then you read the parable a second time and you go, man, what if this is about the church? Well, that's pretty obvious, right? 
you're wandering along, and someone like Paul says, hey, did you know that the creator God, creator, sustainer, redeemer, authority, in through for, he loves you and he died for you and made a way for you to have eternity with him? And you go, dang, that seems like a treasure. He goes, yeah, you can have it. And so you do what you have to do to obtain it. You say, that's a treasure. I actually want that. That actually speaks into the deepest needs of my heart. Actually, like, I know that I'm built for something more than just this life. And actually, I know that, like, something about sin just has me trapped and has me claws and I can't get my way out on my own. You're telling me that this God made a way for me to have life and eternity and perfection with him? Heck, yes, that's a treasure. I'll do whatever I have to do to have it. Right? Same fervency. I'll liquidate all my resources. I don't care. I'll sell my house. I'll empty out my retirement. That's a treasure. I'd rather have that than any of those things. I'll sell the farm to buy that field. That's like a good little preacher line. I probably should have thought about how to use that strategically. (laughs) But you get what I'm saying, right? The the context, it's just, it's obvious. Jesus is a treasure. And he's a treasure worth possessing. He's a treasure worth having. And guys, I'm just telling you, I need you to hear this. If that is true in you, then no one will ever have to guilt you or pressure you or shame you to engage in the mission of God. Because if Jesus truly becomes the treasure of your heart, you will do whatever the heck you have to do to possess that treasure. It will consume you. It will gladly, gladly, gladly pay the price because it's your treasure. Matt told a story months ago about selling his CD wallet to buy tickets to a prom to go out with his now wife. It's a cute story, right? You should ask him about it. But the truth is so stinking simple. When you're in love, you do stupid stuff. (laughs) And you don't care about the price you pay. When you found a real treasure, other stuff, it just seems foolish. And all of a sudden you're able to step back and you go, moths and rust will destroy that. It will rot. It doesn't mean anything. But this is eternity. This is everything. You are made in God's image, chosen by him before the foundations of the world. You are Jesus' treasure, and he gladly paid an insane price to have you. What a gospel What a God we serve. So, what do we do with that? I've said that like four times. But I want you to think about it. I'm going to give you two questions, two simple questions to think about, and this is how we'll end out our time. The first one is this. Is Jesus your treasure? That's a good question to ask yourself. It's an honest question. I know a lot of you guys have been around church 
a long time, and you probably have really well thought out theologies, and you probably know a lot about Christ and a lot about the Bible. But this is a different question. Is Christ your treasure? Do you know about him, or do you know him? And I want you to honestly reflect on that. You can know a lot about someone by just following them on Instagram. You don't know them. But you can learn facts. You can know a lot about Jesus by hanging out in church and going to Sunday school and reading your Bible and doing Bible studies. That doesn't mean you know him. Billy Sunday used to say, uh, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you a car. You can know a lot about Jesus without knowing him. And I would say, humbly, confessionally, by the way, to know Jesus is to treasure him. You can't know this Jesus as he really is and not just get a sparkle in your eye. Because he is a treasure and his love for you is insane. It's, it's hard to even comprehend that someone as amazing as Jesus would love someone as not amazing as me, much less love me to the depths that he has loved me. To know him is to love him. To know Jesus is to treasure him. So I just want to say this. Man, if you're in this room and you don't treasure Jesus, and you don't truly know him, I want to invite you to consider that. I want to invite you to not leave this space today without seriously considering that invitation. Because it is an invitation. He made a way for you from death to life. He bought a seat for you at his table. I love the parable of the wedding feast where, where this, this, this dad who represents God is putting on this massive wedding feast and there's too much room and not enough people. And so he tells his servants, go find anyone and everyone. Fill up this feast. I don't want a single empty chair. And they say, we went all around town. We found everyone we could. And he says, keep going. Look in the alleys. Look in the garbage. Look in the country. I don't care. Fill up my feast, beloved. Christ has made a way for you. There is a seat for you at his feast. Do not leave today without considering that invitation. And if that messes with you, and you're processing that, and you're thinking about that, I would invite you to come talk to me about it. I'd love to sit with you and chat about what that means. Any of our pastors would. But if you're in this place and you know Christ is your treasure, then maybe you're just really bad at treasuring him. I would invite you with a second question, and this is how we'll kind of end this out. If you treasure Christ, my question is, would you suffer for him? Would you, would you consider what it means to fill up what is lacking in Christ's suffering on behalf of those who need to see it? Would you just consider that as an invitation, as an option for you? I want you to hear this. I'm sorry, we're like over. I'm going hard on you guys. <laughs> if, you, if your household income is over $55,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of all of humanity in terms of wealth. 
You just are. I know, like, we sit here and we're like, <laughs> seems like squarely middle to lower middle class. No, you're the top 1% of wealth in all of humanity. You know, Jesus gave a parable once about what it means to love a neighbor who's suffering. It's a parable of the Good Samaritan, and the analogy of the, or kind of the, the, the main thrust of the parable is amazing because these, these really racist Jewish people were basically asking, who's our neighbor? And Jesus basically goes, um, everyone, everyone, everyone. There was a group of students at Dallas Theological Seminary back in the 80s who, uh, they were having a debate in their school formally about what does it mean to be on mission for Christ? Does it mean soul winning or does it mean advancing the cause of social justice? And it was this either or debate. And so a group of students uh, took two Bibles and uh, actual physical Bibles and they removed every single verse in one about soul winning and they, with an exacto knife and they removed every single verse in the other about uh, caring for the poor and the hurting. And they held up both the Bibles that were then in tatters. Because the reality is, they're one and the same thing according to our Bible. If you believe this Bible, then you believe that you, as a Christian, are called to preach the gospel to anyone and everyone that will hear it. And that you are called to give of yourself to combat the effects of the curse on this planet. You cannot tell me that the New Testament is the divinely inspired and revealed word of God and that those things are not true. You cannot. You were saved by Christ, not by anything you did. No, nothing you did. You can't boast for good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. You are. In fact, the scripture says pretty bluntly that if someone comes to you and they're in need and they're hurting and your response is overly spiritual, hey, I'm so sorry, I'll pray for you, be blessed, be fed, and you don't actually meet their needs, then you are terrible. <laughs> you don't get it. They're one in the same message. You cannot wait one to the exclusion of the other. You can't. So, American church, wealthiest, most religiously free church in the entire history of existence. Hello. I'm a part of you. <laughs> We're the most religiously free, the most wealthy Christians in the entire history of our faith. I'm just going to tell you, you have an opportunity to suffer for the kingdom. You do. It's right in front of you. We have an opportunity to suffer for the kingdom. It's 2019. There's such a thing as high-speed internet and social media and wireless money transfers. You can speak the gospel through the truth of the message and through the alleviation of suffering to all of your neighbors in the world. You can. You can. You can engage with organizations like Baptist Global Relief or the IMB or Compassion International, or World Vision, and you can be a part of speaking the freedom of Christ to your neighbors in this world. You can. The question in front of you is simply, do you desire to suffer for Jesus? Do you desire to sacrifice comforts, to live a set-apart, different life with less conveniences, and less pleasure and less comfort that others might 
be invited to the same table you've been invited to. Listen, guys, that's a message for me as it is to you. I'm not saying that to blast you. I'm saying that because that is the truth of the kingdom. This Jesus is so grand. His gospel is so amazing. And you and I, you and I, undeserving as we are, have been bought and included in this kingdom. And we are invited to join with our brothers and sisters like Paul and suffer for the sake of the kingdom that more might be invited in. May we not miss this opportunity. So, I went too long. I'm sorry. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite Chris to come back up here, and I just want to do this. I want to give some space, and I want, you to, I want you to get with Jesus in a way you need to. I want you to get with Jesus. I say this every week. I want you to hear this. I want you to get with Jesus. I need you to get in some space where you can pray. I need you to pray over these two questions. I need you to come to Jesus with honesty, because I got news for you. He, he knows. Come to him with honesty. Talk about where he sits in your heart as your treasure. Ask yourself honestly, with Christ present, how much you will suffer for his kingdom. So if you need to get out of your seat and you need to get somewhere else in the room so that you're not distracted, if you need to get on your knees to do that, if you need some, just another human being to pray with you, to help you formulate words, we're going to have two, Mike and Michelle are going to be prayer counselors for us today. They're going to be up and around. You can come find me. But guys, like, let's, let's experience this discomfort for a second. Can I give that invitation? Look, I know if you're like me, you hear stuff like that. Oh, you're so wealthy. You're so blessed. You could be doing so much for the kingdom. And it just feels like I'm just beating you over the head. And we hear so much about all like, and it just like, it, can, it just kind of numb us out to that stuff. And if you're like me, and I'm saying this confessionally, you're like looking for the out to just not think about that long enough that you can kind of normalize and go to lunch. <laughs> I would encourage you, experience that invitation for a minute. Live in that discomfort for a minute. Feel that for a few minutes. Feel that with Jesus. Don't miss an opportunity to reflect on your Savior and the treasure that he is. So let's take a few minutes and pray. And then I'll close out our time in prayer and we'll, we'll celebrate communion together. But beloved, get in some space with Christ and, and do the work you need to do this morning.